Last week, uh, we had a great weekend. We started on Saturday night with our worship and healing service. It was amazing time together, time of worship, time of ministry, watching the Lord minister to so many people and watching him use so many of our ministry team to minister emotional, physical needs, spiritual needs. And, and we had Jim McCracken here as we set in elders and deacons last week. And then Jim shared a message. And I want to just start with a very brief update on Jim's message or review of his message for those of you who may not have been here. He, the title of his message was The Miracle Maker and Getting to Know the Miracle Maker. And one of the things that struck me as he was sharing was when he talked about what occurs when God performs miracles. And we all have different ideas and perceptions about different kinds of miracles. But I like what he said about what's happening when God does that. First of all, he said God reveals himself when he performs miracles. He's revealing more and more of his character and who he is when he performs those miracles. And he not only reveals himself, he, he gives us a better picture of the character of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which is here and is yet to come, one of those strange concepts that we have, and how we are residents in the kingdom of God here on earth and representatives of it, and, of course, ultimately the kingdom of God when Jesus comes back. And the third thing that he talked about, and I, I thought this was so striking, is when God performs miracles, people, we, are blessed. He reveals his character, the character of his kingdom, and the people are blessed by these different miracles. And when God performs a miracle, there are many things that he's doing. He's demonstrating, as I said, what I, I've already uh, expressed. But he also is showing his compassion, his mercy, his love, his power. He, he does so many amazing things in, in demonstrating who he is. But he also is using it as a, to bear witness to the message of the gospel. He used it in Scripture in Hebrews 2, verse 4, he used it in this particular case. He used it to confirm or explain who he was and who the disciples were. It talks about in Hebrews, verse two, Hebrews 2, verse 4, by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He used it as a witness, a witness to himself, to the disciples, and, of course, to the gospel message. Now, we do have a devil and Jim didn't spend much time on this because you can only cover so much in a single message, but he reminded us that there is a devil out there, and he is a counterfeiter, he's a liar, and a deceiver. The Bible tells us in the end times he's going to be making or performing all kinds of counterfeit miracles. So the, one of the things that Jim shared with us at that particular time was how important it is for us as a church to be a discerning people. You know, people get in the habit of chasing miracles, or chasing the people that God is using to perform the miracles. And we, need, we sometimes lose our, our common sense and our discernment. And he's saying when the devil is a liar, a deceiver, a counterfeiter, his goal is to use what God would use for his glory. He would use it to bring destruction. So God's using it as a witness, demonstrating all these things about who he is in the kingdom, blessing us, and we need to be aware there's a devil. And then the last thing that he asked us was, so what are we supposed to do? Besides be discerning, what are we supposed to do? Well, to be discerning, one of the things that he stressed and I would want to stress is we need to draw near to God. We need to draw near to God. We sometimes, and that was the, the, the primary thought behind his message, you know, the maker of the miracles. We need to draw near to the miracle maker, not so much be infatuated with the miracles. 
Miracles are awesome. I'm going to talk about what I believe is the greatest miracle today. But we need to know drawing near to God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, and I'm not going to read it all, it probably is on the screen, but it talks about, you know, we now have a confidence to enter into the Holy Holies. We can now go into the presence of God, drawing near to Him. We can draw near with a sincere heart, a pure heart, and with full assurance of faith, being confident in who He is and who we are, confident in what He has done for us. You know, when I, when I think about drawing near to God, it is an amazing thought to think that a holy, righteous God wants us, sinful people, to draw near to him. How in the world can that happen? It's an amazing, and I think the most amazing miracle, creating that way for us to draw near to him. And I'm going to be looking at a scripture in 1 Corinthians and I need to remind us that in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing a letter to a church that's got a few issues. And he's writing to a church that he planted in the city of Corinth. Now, I don't know how Paul sat down and decided where to plant churches. But if he did it at all like we might do it, he looked at Corinth and saw a number of things. One, it was a large city. It was a large city. It was located near or on a port. So it was a place where people from many, many nations would come as they would bring all of the different merchandise into the port at Corinth. So there would be at any given time sailors from many, many nations there. It was also a well-traveled trade route because of all of the merchandise being brought in. So people were always coming and going into Corinth. And believe it or not, it was a tourist place. People would come there for a number of things. As I read about Corinth, I think about a place in the United States that people go on vacation to, and I know nobody here does, but it's called Las Vegas. Corinth sounds a little bit like the Las Vegas of America. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. There were many, many peoples, many, many different religions, there was a lot of pagan religion, and if you wanted to summarize it, you could just say it like this. It was a very, 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 very evil city. Sin abounded. Pleasure was worshipped. Corinth, there was, like I said, a number of religions. One of the things that maybe caught Paul's attention was there was an already an established Jewish population there. But one of the religions, and there was a great big temple there. How many have ever heard of Aphrodite? Aphrodite, the sex goddess. Here in Corinth, people would come to come and worship at the Temple of Aphrodite. One of the primary ways of worshiping was with one of the 1,000 temple prostitutes that were there. This was the culture that he planted a church in. And if you plant a new church in that kind of culture, guess where a lot of your people might be coming from? That kind of background. And there would not be any different than us. We, we might have got saved from whatever our backgrounds were and the people that we were fellowshipping with and associated with, our friends, our family, relatives, whatever. And we realize that it's a little bit hard to move from the culture that we lived in and surrounded us to one that might be more pleasing to God. We struggle with it. And this is kind of what was going on with Paul 
when he is in Ephesus on another missionary journey, and he gets word from the church in Corinth, basically saying, uh, we got some issues here in Corinth. There's some sexual immorality and perversion going on in the church. Uh, the services themselves are a little bit messy. There's people doing some crazy things and out of order. There's a lot of immorality in the church that seems to be abounding. There's strife, disunity in the church. There is heathen practices being incorporated into the church. And Paul gets this letter. It's only been gone about three years, and he spent 18 months there trying to establish the foundation in that church, getting these people on a, a firmer foundation of what we would call the Word of God, the gospel message. And if you read Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, you'll see that he is giving a lot of instruction on how we should live and why we should live that way. And quite frankly, what even makes it possible for us to live in such a way that God gets the glory from the life that we're living, the lifestyle that we're living. And this is what Paul is talking to the people about in 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to be looking primarily today at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, but I'm going to start with verse 9 at the risk of having to do a whole other sermon to explain myself. But, <laughs> but starting in verse 9, understanding the background of Corinth, who Paul's talking to, and he even says in this letter, he says, hey, I'm not writing this letter to shame you. I'm just writing this letter to admonish you, to encourage you. He could have said, I'm writing this letter not to shame you, but boy, do you need to get your act together. And it's possible to get your act together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the wicked or the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? First of all, <clears throat> he is talking about the unrighteous. What makes us righteous? Jesus Christ. When we become Christians, when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, God declares us righteous. The unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you do not inherit the kingdom. You do not go to heaven. So I want to just preface this because what follows sometimes gets a little uncomfortable. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, immoral, and you can just about put any immoral sexual act or any sexual act outside of marriage in there. He says, no one that's sexually immoral, nor an idolater, nor an adulterer, nor a male prostitute, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. I believe, as he's writing this letter to his church, that we are talking about those that are the unrighteous. The way he refers to them, not by name or as a group, but by their behavior. I believe these are people that are sold out to the lifestyle represented in those words. It's not referring to a believer who has made a mistake. It's not referring to a believer who has got ensnared back into something. I do not believe that is the case at all. I believe that that these references are to the unrighteous who are living in this lifestyle, have chosen to live in this lifestyle in spite of having an opportunity to hear and know the gospel message. And that's when I, why he says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And that is what? And this is what I like, and this is what we'll be focusing on this morning, verse 11. That is what some of you were. This would be an appropriate place for an amen from some of us. Amen. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You have been washed, sanctified, justified. I believe we are going to be talking about and are talking about the greatest miracle that we'll ever see. If I would have asked you what's the greatest miracle you've personally ever seen before I started this message, what might you have said? Some of us have been on mission trips and we've seen dramatic healings. We might have said those things. Some may have said they saw life changes and transformations. How many of us would have said the greatest miracle I have ever seen is what God did in my life when he rescued me from the pit of hell, from the lifestyle I was living, and he washed me, sanctified me, and justified me. It doesn't get bigger than that for any of us. And Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and he's reminding them. He's just reminding them. He's saying, hey, no matter what you were, no matter who you happen to be sitting by in the church today and what they were, you have been washed, sanctified, and justified. We're going to look at those three words. Washed, sanctified, justified. Part of the greatest miracle of all time. These words... And you could put many different things under this list that I've created, but it says in these three verbs we can, one, find our identity and our purpose in Christ. Gal, everybody's looking for an identity and purpose. A lot of people don't know where to find it because they won't look into Christ. But as Christians, we can find our identity and purpose in Christ, realizing and understanding we've been washed, sanctified, and justified and what that all entails. We begin to understand what the miracle of salvation really is. We can take it so for granted. You know, there's a reason we always say, oh, they're new Christians, they're really fired up. They haven't forgotten yet. Some of us that have been Christians for a long time should be way more fired up than they are because God saved us a long time ago and we've just been delivered from a whole bunch of crap that could have taken place. But we mature and lose our fire And Jaron has to remind us to fire up. You got it, girl. It builds a foundation for our lives. It gives us a foundation that our lives can be built upon, understanding and realizing, washed, sanctified, justified. And it really should build our faith to this place that we can put our hope and trust in the hands of God, in his care. Not in circumstances, not in material things, not in other people, but in God. When we understand those three words. So we're going to look at those three words in a little more detail. I'll try not to be too repetitive. But the first word, washed. Apaluo. Simply means to wash off or to wash it away. When you think of a sinner, we're often referred to, and even in the scripture, as unclean. It's kind of like, We're polluted by sin. And there is just a natural instinct or a natural desire to be clean. I don't know about you, but I can't stand dirty hands. My hands get dirty 
whether I'm eating food or working on something outside, I have this urge, I've got to get my hands washed. It's driving me crazy. As my dad told me I'll never be a good farmer because I can't farm in gloves. But we're a lot that way with sin. We want to clean up the exterior. We know when we're dirty. We know when we're filthy. We know when our soul is a mess. And we want to clean it up, wash it, but we can't do it in our own strength. It's impossible. But there is that desire to put on a good front. You know, hopefully we're not doing that, but a lot of people do that on Sunday morning. Let's clean up and take a shower and put on some nice clothes and we'll go in and smile and nobody will know all the stuff in our lives. Nobody will know the sin that's in our lives and nobody will know the troubles and the things we're dealing with. We'll just go in and fake it. There is a desire in us. You realize that, right? It's called pride. That God says, you know what? You know what he calls pride? I'll leave that there. But he has a word for it. We're unclean. There's a great story in the Bible about David. David and Bathsheba, right? Most of us are a little bit familiar with that, those that might not be. David was a king. His army was on the battlefield. That's where he should have been. But he was back in this castle, his, his palace, whatever it was, and he was walking on the roof, and he sees this gorgeous woman taking a bath named Bathsheba. To make a long story short, he gets her pregnant. And boy, it's time to clean up and wash up and make a... So then what's he do? He, try, he, he goes on and he commits murder and deception. I mean, he, he makes a mess of things. Trying to clean it up, trying to look good. You know, no matter how hard we try to look good, no matter how much we impress people, no matter what position people might elevate you to to make you think you're good, we still aren't good. We can't do it in ourselves. We can't clean ourselves up from sin. Until David was confronted by the prophet, Nathan. And then we see in Psalms 51, and I'm just going to read the first two verses. This is finally David crying out, God, have mercy on me. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, please blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. No matter what we do, we cannot wash away the stain of sin in our own strength. It's impossible. It's a burden. We can try as we may, but as soon as we... We need to understand, we still have an enemy, the devil. And he knows what it is we're trying to hide under the surface. And he will use it against us. And we will carry burdens, burdens of guilt, burdens of shame, burdens of condemnation, burdens of fear, burdens of anxiety. We will carry all that. It's a burden that we can't get rid of, and we can try to hide it, but it's there and it's working inside of us, and the devil's having a field day with us. There's a scripture that I'm taking slightly out of context. You can rebuke me later. But it says in Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all you are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I know there's more application to that than this, but I believe the heaviest burdens we carry are those hidden sins. And the rest that he's talking about is the washing away of our sins. It's taken from us. Paul is reminding the church in Corinth that they were clean. There's many of us here who need to hear this word. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, you are clean. You have been washed. It doesn't matter what you were. You are 100% 
washed by the blood of Jesus. You are clean. When we understand, believe that, all of a sudden, our, our understanding of who we are, a building a foundation for our life, all of those things can change. Doors are shut to the enemy to attack us. You are washed. And he's saying to the church, you are washed. Whatever you were, it's been washed away. It has no place. It can no longer haunt you. It can't tor- torment you. And it can't hold you back any longer. And then I would add, unless you let it. Unless you let it. But we are washed by the blood of Jesus. No matter what you used to be, any of us and all of us, no matter what we used to be, we are 100% clean, washed by the blood of Jesus when we accept Christ. And not only that, you are now sanctified. Sanctified. Hagiazo. To make holy, consecrate, set apart. Some of these words have such different and big meanings and numerous meanings to them. You and I are sanctified at salvation. You are washed at salvation. You are sanctified at salvation, but sanctification is a little different. We are declared sanctified by God. We are declared holy. We are declared pure. We are declared set apart. We are now set apart for him, for his kingdom, for his glory. But it's a little different in that there is a process aspect to sanctification. With the sanctification that comes to us from God comes a human responsibility to do the things that will increase the sanctification, the renewing, the the reforming of who we were. We are declared sanctified, but we have a role to play. We need to be doing things, and the Holy Spirit will teach you and guide us and lead us. He'll never forsake us. He'll lead us through this process of sanctification no matter how bad we mess it up at times. But we need to do some simple things like be in the Word of God, prayer, be in fellowship with one another, all of those things, minister, share the good news of the gospel. All of these things are part of us growing in this process of sanctification, but he has already declared us sanctified. So in that role, the man, we as human beings have responsibility. And Paul here is reminding the church at Corinth again, no matter what you've been, no matter what your neighbor's been, you've been declared holy and set apart and called by God. That is who and what we are. All those titles that he listed, you know, about being drunkards and thieves and effeminate in some scripture and some translations, homosexuals, adulterers, all those things, all those titles, guess what? If you are any of them, you're not anymore. They don't fit you anymore. We need to get that in our head and in our heart because of what God has done. By washing us and sanctifying us, that's not us. It doesn't apply to you anymore. But it is a lie that the devil will try to use to continually keep you down, to keep you from bringing glory to God, to to prevent you from fulfilling your destiny, the future that he has for you. And this is what Paul is reminding the church at Corinth about, and I I think it's, it's relevant today for each one of us, maybe even more so. The culture of Corinth is so similar in so many ways to the culture in America. We've been washed. We've been sanctified, becoming more sanctified, and then we have been justified. The third word, justified. 
dikaiolo. Simply means to show, to be righteous, and to declare righteous. Well, sanctification was made possible, and we're declared sanctified by God, and then we have a responsibility. When it comes to justification, it's different. There is nothing you and I can do to justify ourselves. And if we want to get picky, I guess you could say, well, we need to, by faith, accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. If that's your position, awesome. But there's nothing we can do. We are justified by faith. God is the one who justifies us. You know, sometimes I think we get a a warped view of God to another extreme. We are justified, meaning I am no longer any of those things. I am innocent. I've been declared innocent. I have been declared totally pure, righteous, and holy. So we might somehow or other deceive ourselves or be deceived by our culture to think, well, God, there must be a few sins that God just kind of winks at because he loves us so much, because he's so kind and compassionate and caring that some of those sins aren't really that big a deal. It's just not true. It's just not true. It goes against everything that Jesus died on the cross to accomplish in regards to sin. It doesn't matter what our culture says is okay. It doesn't matter even what our imaginations might tell us is okay. It doesn't matter what our peers or friends or family members tell us is okay. If it's sin, it's not okay with God. But Paul is saying, I'm not telling you to shame you. I'm just telling you these things that you to remind you that you have been washed, sanctified, and justified, and those things have no power over you anymore. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. God's not pretending like you never sinned. We need to understand, what, what did it take for him to justify you and me? It's what communion was all about this morning. There was an amazing price paid to settle the debt of the sins that you and I committed. Jesus had to, as a sinless, spotless son of God, be sacrificed on a cross. His body beaten and abused and eventually nailed to that cross and to die the most horrendous death we can imagine. Experience and pay the price of our sin. He had to, he had to take upon himself the wrath of God that our sin deserved. And Paul's reminding the church, that's what he's done for you. You didn't deserve it. God doesn't care that you didn't deserve it. He loves you so much, he did it anyway. You can't repay him. Jesus knows and doesn't care that you can't pay him back for what he did out of love and obedience to the Father and for us. They love us and and care about us so much that he did it anyway. It's amazing when you think how the one who we sinned against is the one who paid the price that we could be declared washed, sanctified, and justified. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares about us. 
Those are the things that he wants us. And Paul is saying, church, remember, this is who you are. This is what's been done. And you know what? Close the doors to all that stuff from the past. And the Holy Spirit will continue to live in us, work in us, guide us, strengthen us. You know, when he says things like, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm there with you. All those things. He promises to be with us and for us on our side. All we have to do, all we have to do to be washed, sanctified, and justified is to accept by faith who Jesus is and what he did for us. If you're still tormented by your faith or your lack of faith or your past, I should say, if you're still tormented by your past, maybe you need to ask yourself if you truly accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Have you acknowledged the fact that you, in fact, were a sinner, are a sinner? And that sin is separating from you from God and all the very best of what he has for you. And you need to acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner and that Jesus died for your sins. And the moment you receive by faith the gift of salvation, you are washed, sanctified, and justified. The enemy's power is broken in our lives. It's the three miracles in one, really. It's all under the umbrella of salvation. But to be washed, sanctified, and justified. Amazing miracles. Each one of our lives, each one here who has accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, everything about your destiny changed. Everything. And it's by faith. It took a righteous sacrifice for us, the unrighteous, to be called the children of God. Those that hear me speak regularly know that it's one of those things I cling to. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, How great, how great is the love of the Father that he has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. That's who you are. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's who you are. You are a child of God who has been washed, sanctified, and justified by the grace of God, his love, mercy, and compassion. Everything changes. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will quicken these things to our minds, give us greater understanding. Father, I pray you would draw us to your word to to seek out and study to better understand what it means, who we are in Christ, what it is you have done for us, what you have for us in our lives as we go forward. God, I pray against the power of those lies of the enemy in the lives of some of us even here yet today that somehow we aren't good enough somehow we're not worthy, that somehow we should be ashamed, somehow we need to walk and live in fear and pretend to be something we're not. Father, I pray you would break the power of those lies right now in every one of us here that are children of God. And Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, today would be the day they make that decision. Father, I pray all these things that you would receive all the glory and honor, that we would be a people like Paul was encouraging the church to Corinth to be, a people 
living as that new person in Christ, living in a way that brings glory and honor to the Father, living in a way that brings glory and honor to you as the Son. Holy Spirit, we invite you to continue to move and work in each one of our lives. And I pray now, Father, as we go our different directions today, that you would go before us, that you would watch over us, that you would protect us. Keep each one safe as there's so much travel going on this weekend, the 4th of July, and the coming weekend. God, pray your people would be safe. God, we pray for those opportunities to share the hope that is within each one of us. For your glory and honor, in Jesus' name, amen.